Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agricultural literacy discussion. This podcast is brought to you by New York Agriculture in the Classroom and the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Hi there, this is Katie Carpenter, and I'm your host for this episode of Outstanding in Their Field. I was so lucky to capture two interviews with two busy and talented women. Our first interview is with a good friend of mine, Karen Reeves of Reeves Farm, a farm that has been in operation for over 100 years, growing and selling berries and vegetables. You will also meet Trisha Miller. And while not a classroom teacher, Trisha is well integrated into her local school community and used as a resource by teachers, administrators, and school food service to bring people together around food and agriculture. We hope that this episode gets you excited about spring plantings and the possibilities of your own school garden, visiting farmers markets, and identifying the local produce in your grocery stores. Please note that the sound quality may not be up to our normal standards, as these interviews were captured through Zoom during our period of quarantine and social distancing due to COVID-19. Karen, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. Uh, You and I were lucky to have spent two years together in an agricultural leadership program. And during that time, I love being able to get to know you and learn more about your family's multi-generational fruit and vegetable farm in central New York. Can you start by telling us about Reeves Farms and what is your current role on the farm? Uh, So we are a vegetable and berry farm outside of Syracuse in Baldwinsville. And a member of our family has been growing food and farming here since the late 1800s. So my great-great-grandfather came over here from England in like the 1890s. At that time, he grew uh, tobacco, actually, and potatoes. And of course, everybody had like a big garden back then and had a few animals. So it was a very different farm. And it's changed over the years. But since about the 1950s, we've been a pretty, you know, large-scale vegetable operation. I came back to the farm probably about six years ago, I think it is now, and decided to do that as kind of a career change. And our business was growing at the time. My father and my one uncle owned the farm, and then we have two other uncles that work on the farm as well. And then my brother was here, but they were still looking for more help. So I got a call from my dad that was like, if you have any interest in never doing this, it's like now or never because we got to hire somebody. (laughs) And it worked out because I was ready to kind of do something different and move out of the city. I was living in D.C. and Zach and I liked it there, but we didn't really see us being there forever or having a family there. So we decided it was the best thing for us to come back here. I do love your story. I love that there are so many twists and turns to you growing up on this multi-generational farm and it being so part of who you were growing up, and especially in a suburban area where you were pretty much the only farm kid in your, in your school, and you didn't come back to the farm right away. Can you tell us a little bit about your path and what you did after you graduated, and, and where, where did you think you were going? Yeah, sometimes I kind of forget about all that. (laughs) But um, no, you're absolutely right. So 
growing up on the farm, I have three siblings, and then I also had quite a few cousins. You know, we worked here every single summer. It was just a big part of our life, you know, helping out every summer. But like you say, in Onondaga County, it's there are a lot of farms, but it's also, you know, we have one of the bigger cities, Syracuse, in New York State. It's definitely more of like a suburban area, I would say. You know, there was no FFA. There was no 4-H that I was aware of. So we didn't do anything like that. People thought it was really strange when I said my parents were farmers. I'm very close to my siblings. We spent a lot of time together working together. But we also saw farming as kind of a hard life and not the most fun to have every summer be really long hours. So I think... You know, all of us kind of thought, well, I don't know if this is really for me. And we all went to college for different things. It never even occurred to us to go to Cornell to study agriculture. You know, as much as I see so many people in the ag community now that, like, they're, they have all this whole legacy of their family going to Cornell and studying ag. And it was like, no one in our family did that except for maybe, like, one uncle. <laughs> I went to Lemoyne College and I studied human resources management. After I graduated, I actually wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I taught English in Japan for a year. And then when I came back from Japan, I did work on the farm for a little while, just as well, I was trying to, you know, find a job in my field. And then I ended up starting a career working in HR for a pretty large company for seven years. And then came back to the farm, like I said, about six years ago. I think there is a lot of value to having an off-farm job. For most people, if they come back and join the family business or their family farm, I think for most people, that's probably going to be their last job. So it's good to have some outside experience before you do that. So you grow so many different varieties of berries and vegetables, including a selection of both organic and conventional crops. With so many different varieties available of seed and transplants, how do you decide on your farm what to plant each year? Yeah, that's a great question. So our farm is totally driven by a marketing strategy in terms of what we grow. So every year, right about this time of year, we are talking to all our major customers. And in the produce industry, at least on a farm that's our scale, you don't get like solid contracts that say like, we're going to take, you know, 300 peppers from you every week from this time to that time. A, it's hard for us to make like 100% commitments like that because things always change, whether it's weather our planting timing can change if we have a late spring. If we have a really hot summer, you know, things might grow faster and everything kind of bunches up. So produce just doesn't lend itself to like saying you're going to have this exact volume at this exact time. But we do make plans with all our major customers so that, you know, they can give us an idea about what they're interested in. We can tell them when we think we'll have things available. And it's pretty consistent year over year, but, you know, we, we talk to them every year to kind of get some ideas about if they've made any changes or what they're thinking about volumes or pricing. And so then we build a plan off of that. And over the years, we've done a really good job, I think, of honing in on like what we can sell for a decent margin so that you don't have tons and tons of excess. Because if you have a lot of excess in this industry, you tend to then have to like offload it for a price that is not going to give you a good return, whether you have to sell it on consignment or, you know, you just have to kind of get rid of it wherever you want, because you certainly don't want to have to just leave it in the field or throw it away. So, you know, we go through every item that we grow 
and look at our sales for the past couple of years, talk to our customers. And then we decide, you know, what things we're going to reduce a little bit, what we're going to increase. You know, we really try to hone in on the right volume so that we don't have a lot of extra, but we also meet the commitments to our customers. And we don't make big sweeping changes typically. We have some really long-term relationships with our customers. They tend to take the same amount of stuff. We're pretty close year over year. So it's not like one year we grow 200,000 pepper plants and then the next year we grow none, you know. But there are farms that do things like that and make big sweeping changes. You know, we tend to make incremental adjustments, you know, adjusting things by like 5 or 10% to just kind of keep a handle on our growth or, um, you know, if we need to cut back, we try to do it somewhat conservatively. So I, I'm glad you brought up markets because I think that's a really interesting conversation, especially when it comes to your farm. I really feel, I guess, just from the outside looking in, that you have multiple avenues where you're selling your produce. You know, I know you have your farm stand, you have a U-Pick, you obviously sell to grocery stores, and even in my area, I'll see your sweet corn when our sweet corn isn't ready yet. So can you talk about the variety of ways that your farm sells your products and the different ways that you're selling those? Yeah, so our primary customer is, you know, the larger retail grocery chains. So if you live in New York State and you're familiar with, you know, the major grocery chains like, you know, Wegmans, Tops, we sell to Walmart, Rice Chopper. So we're selling to all of those. And our strategy might be a little bit different than some farms. We have decided that we need to be really diversified in our customers so that we have more opportunity to make adjustments and multiple avenues to sell things rather than just be tied into like one major customer. And I think that's one of our strengths in that we are able to sell to multiple customers. But we are heavily focused on, you know, large retail grocery chains. We joke around that like we'll sell to anybody. Like you said, we do have a little farm stand. We do have a U-Pick, which is probably, I don't know, maybe 1%, 2% of our overall business. But we do appreciate customers wanting to buy directly from the farm. If we could make that bigger, we would. It's just right now the resources are limited to like really expanding that. But we'll also sell, like you mentioned, you'll see sweet corn up where you live. And maybe at like a, a smaller farm stand up there that will buy some of our corn before theirs comes in. So, yeah, we'll sell to anybody. <laughs> so if, if it's a little fruit stand that wants like two bushel of corn or, you know, if it's a huge uh, grocery chain that wants a tractor trailer load, we can do all of those things. Some people might say you want to focus your strategy a little bit more, but it seems to work for us. So that's kind of where we're focusing. And we do have some, a few restaurant customers. The restaurant customers that we do have, I would say like we've formed a relationship with them over time. They seem to really value having a local product. So that's been a good experience, but it's still a relatively small part of a local business. Let's talk a little bit about like the life cycle of your farm, starting with spring. As we are jumping into spring, what are some major tasks that we might start seeing or would be happening on your farm right now? So we are just starting for the year. We will open our greenhouses on Monday. So, you know, for the last couple of weeks, we've just been trying to firm up plans with customers and make sure we get all our seed here on time. And of course, it's pretty far away. In most people's mind, like, you know, it's kind of still winter here. And when you even talk to customers and they start talking about like what they might want in August, it's a far 
ways away. But we, of course, have to kind of know what they're looking for now because that's when we're going to start these seeds in the greenhouse. And once we start the seeds, it's very hard to turn things around. Next week, we'll start our greenhouses. We start growing things like cabbage, tomatoes, and peppers are the first things that we see because they take a little bit longer. Well, in the case of cabbage, uh, that can be planted relatively early because it can tolerate some cold temperatures. And then in the case of tomatoes and peppers, they take a little longer to grow, so you want to get them started early. So we grow maybe a half to three quarters of our own transplants. And then we do buy some from another farm that's not too far from here. And so from about now till early April, we're doing a lot of maintenance and also starting our plants. And then, depending on the weather, hopefully we can start plowing some ground at the end of March. Uh, we'll actually start planting some peas because those get directly seeded out into the field. They don't grow in a greenhouse. So those are some of the first things we plant. And then also sweet corn, we'll start planting in like mid-April outside. So that's, again, something that's direct seeded. So those are the first two items that kind of get put out. And then usually in early May is when we can start planting some of our transplants. We bring them out of the greenhouse and start planting them outside. As we transition into summer, I'm sure things get busier still. So what's happening in summer on your farm? Yeah, so we grow strawberries in addition to the vegetables, which is kind of a little bit of a funny thing, I guess. When I was a kid, I guess I just assumed that all vegetable farms grow strawberries because around here, they all do. So we have quite a few farms in Onondaga County that are very similar to our farm. If you are familiar with Emmys or there's Williams Farms in Cicero, uh, owned by Sam Tassone, they grow very similar stuff to us. So like they grow the pretty much the same vegetables and they grow strawberries too. And these were the farms that I knew about when I was a kid. So I just assumed everybody did this. So then in talking to more vegetable farmers over the years, when I would be like, oh, do you guys grow any strawberries? They would always laugh because, you know, it's like, are you crazy? No, strawberries are, you know, kind of a nightmare. Why why would we grow those? It has nothing to do with vegetables. And it is, it is a whole different animal, but it gives us something that comes in early. So you can imagine, like you said, summer is very busy for us because of our climate in New York. We have a very short window to grow vegetables. We're pretty much harvesting vegetables. Mid-June, we can pick some peas, but the majority of things are getting harvested in July, August, and September. So you don't really have a lot of time to basically make your money during a short season in New York. But we do grow strawberries. Strawberries are a perennial plant. So that means you plant them and you can keep them. Uh, you leave them in the ground. And you, in most cases, you can pick them for two or three years. They'll keep growing and come back every year after winter. So that's one of the first crops that we start harvesting. So something we're going to harvest this year, we planted either last April or the April before that. And, you know, it gives us an early item that we can start to sell before all the vegetables are ready. July, August, and September, that's when most of our vegetables are coming in. You know, and during that time, we're working seven days a week very long hours to, you know, try to get everything picked and sent out because that's when we can grow things here. And then by mid-late October, we have a frost and that's when the growing season's over. And unless you're growing inside, there's not a whole lot that you can really do unless you're, or you can store uh, product as well. But we've decided that we don't want to do any storage 
winter is we're not off but there's less work to do i guess i'll say we're not selling produce but there's a plenty of other stuff to do and you do have a packing house on your farm so with so many different types of fruits and vegetables that you're growing your berries and vegetables that you're growing what type of activities happen in the packing house and how many times are you changing over either equipment or tools or packaging depending on the items some things are packed in the field and then some things are brought into the packing house to be washed and packed. You know, it just depends on the type of item. So for example, like our strawberries, they're so delicate, you can't bring them into a packing house and like run them through a washer line and, you know, handle them a lot because they're just going to be juice. We grow a very different variety of strawberry than they do, like say in California or Florida, and ours tend to be a lot softer. So they're just very delicate. So that's something where we pick them directly into clamshells and right in the field, they go right into the box. And basically all we do is bring them up to our packing house to be put into cold storage. But things like cucumbers and peppers, winter squash, those all come up here. They're harvested in you know pails or containers of some kind. We have like wash pack lines. So they go through a washer and then they get sorted by size. We have a tomato sorter that will sort things by color and size. So we do have some mechanical things that make it a little bit easier, but a good majority of it is also just done by humans. So you're just looking at things like peppers to see if they have a bruise or that they have a scratch or are they starting to turn red, but they're not really red. And those types of things get picked out and then packed into boxes accordingly. And then depending on the size of a product and the color, they get different grades. And then, of course, we get different pricing for different grades. So like I'll just give you an example of cucumbers. If a cucumber is like a little bit bent or it has a lot of scratches on it, that is not something that the grocery store can accept. So we pull all those out and most of those will go to like a restaurant customer or somebody that's going to cut them up and they don't necessarily care what they look like because no one's going to see the whole cucumber and they're just going to see a little slice in their salad. So there are avenues to sell things that aren't perfect, but that's one of the keys to, I guess, of any successful produce farm. I think you really have to find a market and a decent market for your seconds, you know, basically things that are not retail quality, because if you don't have a market for those things, it gets expensive pretty quickly because every time you're grading and sorting produce, you're going to have some that are not the number one quality and you've got to find a place to sell them because they cost just as much to pack and pick and sort as the ones that were perfect. Now, some people might find it interesting that on your farm, you are growing both organic and conventional produce. Have you always grown organic produce or is this more of a recent addition to your farm? We are very focused on a market-driven strategy. So we decided in 2006, and this is before I was on the farm, but my uncle really decided to try to take a look at what it would take to start growing some organic produce because of market demand. You know, at the time, it was still relatively early before organic was in every grocery store with every item. And, you know, at the time, one of our customers was like, you know, this is kind of where the industry is going. Everyone should really be taking a look at this as another market. And so for us, it started with a very small blueberry field. It's about three to four acres. Because it was a relatively small crop for us, he says he wasn't a very good blueberry manager, meaning 
he's like, I didn't really spray them like I should. You know, we always have a few pests in there, but it wasn't that big of a deal. We would use one weed spray to keep the weeds down, but we weren't really using a lot of pesticides. And we kind of just ignored them and they weren't really too bad. So he thought, well, let's try with this one crop. We were using like one spray, just stop using it and see what happens. And it was basically like, well, there's not really much of a difference. We had to change the fertilizer we were using. You know, maybe we mowed and pulled some weeds a little bit more. And it wasn't that big of a change in that case. So that was kind of how we we started was to convert that field. And the whole process of going organic, if you're a conventional farm, is that you have to have three years where you basically don't use any prohibited pesticides or fertilizer on the field so to basically convert it to organic. So it took three years of, you know, not spraying those blueberries and using organic practices to then where we could actually sell them as certified organic. Over time, our customers wanted more and more organic produce. And it made sense for us because we're going there anyway with zucchini and tomatoes and cucumbers and a bunch of different items. Well, now I can also basically grow the same items using different practices. And now I just increase the types of things that I can sell. Now, growing organically obviously has a whole other set of challenges and practices that you've got to follow. And it's evolved a lot. You know, we started out with like what we would call like a big garden. We just kind of like grew a little bit of everything just to see what people were interested in. And then over time, when we could see where there was more demand, we started to focus on certain items more. So like today, we grow a lot of organic grape tomatoes and quite a bit of organic winter squash, but then also some other items like zucchini and cucumbers. Well, Karen, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today, right before your spring work really starts. And thank you so much for sharing your story about your farm. We appreciate it very much. We are going to go from hundreds of acres of berries and vegetables to just a few school garden raised beds. Trisha Miller shares her story of why connecting students to food is so important to her and how she has built sustaining connections with the school community and agricultural community in Erie County. Trisha, thank you so much for joining us on Outstanding in Their Field. You are a little different of a guest on our podcast because you aren't a classroom teacher, but you have a very strong presence in the Hamburg Central School District out in Western New York. Can you tell us both about the Hamburg School District and what's your role in the school? So Hamburg Central School District is a school of six schools. There are four elementary schools, one middle school, and a high school. And I'm lucky enough that I have been able to help with many other volunteers the past 10 years to do garden-based education with the kids. And then once our district ended up with our fabulous food service director, Ann Rich, and our new superintendent and farm-to-school was brought in, I've been lucky enough to be able to participate on the farm-to-school team and help connect kids with where our food is coming from and, you know, with local farms. And tell us a little bit more about the school district. What is your makeup of students? What does your community look like? Our community is lots of young families. We don't have a high free and reduced lunch rate, but even though we are so close to farm country, there was a disconnect between families, their food, and where their food is coming from. So I feel like, you know, offering the connection to gardens and to how food begins and to our local farms it was a missing piece that was here long ago and and now it's back again 
I think that's great. You know, and you're located in a really interesting spot. You're nestled kind of close up to Buffalo. And so obviously Buffalo is our second largest city in New York state. And then um, we do have uh, just a really booming agriculture industry, especially in fruit and vegetable production out in your, in your area along with dairy and and probably almost everything else it could be grown out in Erie County. Absolutely. Yeah. That has been an awesome piece for myself, but also for the kids because I have gotten to know so many of these wonderful farmers that want to be connected with our kids learning about what they do and how they're supporting what the kids are eating. And this is their family's income. Like this is their livelihood. Now, let's talk a little bit about where your passion and interest for food and agriculture came from. What was your role? How did you end up into this position and working with schools? So I will start when I was very little. I always wanted to be a farmer, which is really interesting. I grew up in Buffalo and, you know, in a neighborhood of small backyards. And when I was very young, I had this neighbor about three houses down. Mrs. Loveland was her name, which is pretty cool. And I would run away. I had a big family, and when I would run away, just three houses down with my wagon and my stuffed animals, she would take me into her yard and dig up plants and explain the roots to me and have me take them home and plant them in my yard. I guess that's all kind of where it began, and I want to share that with all of the kids in our community. That's really interesting um, that it started at such a young age and that you're investing so much in our youth that it really comes full circle that we're able to find those people who invest in us and then we can invest in that next generation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. With this ripple effect, some kid is in awe of the worm that he's never touched before and discovering how that, you know, feeds our soil and helps our plants grow healthy food for us to grow healthy bodies. And, you know, that small but huge connection just grows and ripples through the families and the community and the classrooms and bacteria. It's pretty cool. Now, the organization that you are affiliated with and how I got to know you is through SOUL, which stands for Seeds of Living Education. Now, why did that program start? So about 10 years ago, it was really parents and teachers on a district wellness committee wanting to encourage our kids to eat healthier and maybe encourage some healthier options on our school food menus. And uh, there was a grant applied for to build garden beds, you know, the thought was if we could get kids growing some of the things that might be put on our school food menus, that they might eat it. And the grant was won, the gardens went up, and then myself and lots of volunteers jumped on board to help continue to see this grow. And in order to support it, you know, districts are stretched. So supporting school gardens is a tough thing without funding. So there was a small not-for-profit started so that we could fundraise and we could apply for grants to continue to grow these garden communities and that helped us to spread gardens throughout the entire district because we started at one school and in a few years we're at another and just kept growing at each of the schools. And what does Seoul look like today? Oh gosh, Seoul is, is is amazing. We have a really passionate board of volunteers that range from teachers to business owners, community bankers. We have a lot of support from different areas and not only are we brought into the school district, but other school districts are reaching out to us saying, hey, can you kind of guide us, give us some advice, community programs. We work with our village recreation program and provide garden clubs throughout the summer months to keep the kids connected with the gardens that we are growing in the school district. And we also have like small community, like holistic workshops that reach out to us and say, hey, 
you want to do some seed starting with kids? You know, we have a lot of connections throughout the community. That is great. And so that's really my next question. You do have such a strong presence in your school community and in your outside community. And just like you said, teachers are stretched and schools are stretched and administrators have already so much on their plate. So how did you build those relationships with the administrators and the teachers? Well, I will say, you know, in the beginning, it was just persistence and providing opportunities that made it easy for teachers to get their kids out into the garden or for me to come into the classroom and make those connections. Making it as easy as possible, but also interesting. We, we want to connect to what they're doing in the classroom. So and kind of it maybe inspire the teachers to say, this is a simple thing that you can add to your curriculum. What you're already doing, this simple little piece, connects the kids with the soil and the food that they're eating with your math lesson, with your lesson in the five senses, with ecosystems, with habitat. And one of the big things for us, I will tell you, is tasting. So we do lots of fresh fruit and veggie tasting. They keep bringing us back for that. <laughs> well, Seoul, I mean, just from my perspective, has so many different functions in the school, which include running the school gardens, teaching lessons during the day, assisting with your USDA Farm to School grant. And you also do a lot of cooking and meal prep with students, teaching them those basic life skills of how to wash and prepare fresh fruits and vegetables. Let's talk about each one of those engagements and some of the things you do to engage students and connect with students. So let's start with school gardens. Tell me about your school garden program. So the school garden for each of the schools is a little bit different on where there's space and each school is probably at a different level of connection. We will talk to the teachers that what are you doing in this season that we can bring garden education to connect with what you're doing in the classroom. So I might in the fall do for the younger grades. Parts of the plant in the fall is an amazing connection because they can pull the plants out of the garden beds and see those roots, touch those stems, see those leaves, and pick fruit that's still ready to be harvested and eat. So they get to connect to all those different parts of the plant. And one of the things that makes it really easy for teachers and wanting them to come back is, like I said, being organized. I'm very organized about when I'm bringing kids out because their days are short, their days are full. And I do a sign-up with a sign-up with reminders. And I usually have about five minutes in between each of my classes and my signups now, pretty much at every school will fill with teachers wanting to bring kids out to the garden. Now, I also, in inclement weather, I go into the classroom. We pretty much do the same thing. It's making it as easy as possible to connect to a lesson in their classroom. So if they want to do the soil connection in the middle of winter, guess what? We'll dig into our compost and we will fill bins with the living soil and bring it into their classrooms and do it that way. But we want to make it as easy as possible, but also connect to what they're teaching and make it enjoyable. And it really is so far, we, it's been a hit. Yeah, tell us about your compost program. How does that work? So outside of the school garden, we do have some compost bins. We have some garden huts that you can get through a county extension. And we have a tumbler. The tumbler is where we can compost, like, when we have garden club or garden classes, we can compost our fruit and veggie scraps um, in the tumbler. And the compost huts, we just do garden waste and things that can be on the ground without having to worry about rodents. And at this point, it's not throughout the whole school, but the hope is and the dream is to level by level teach these kids about composting in the cafeteria and continue that throughout the whole district. 
Yeah, that's great interview. Have any teachers that are really bought into this where they're bringing in their home compost and, and adding it to your compost pile? Yes, we have some classrooms at different levels that what they're doing is we're doing five gallon pails that are at each grade level. And so every day kids bring in snacks. This is also encouraging healthy eating, by the way. So any scrap left over from their fruit and veggie snacks goes into that pail and then comes back out to our garden compost. The kids are weighing the compost, you know, they're watching decomposition. It's great. Yeah, I think compost is such an interesting lesson for all grade levels. And, you know, even my husband and I, we have our own compost pile. We've been running for a few years. And after the first year, he goes, it made soil. It's there. And I go, yeah, it did. Totally and even, even he as a 30-something-year-old man was excited to see that decomposition process. I think it's for any age, composting is amazing. It is. The kids love when we have the thermometer in the compost pile or when you test the melting of the cheese stick at the bottom of the compost pile because you can feel the heat. <laughs> they love all of that. They get super excited. Now, you also find yourself not only outside of the classroom with the school garden, but you're also teaching lessons inside of the school day, you know, and I follow a lot of what you're doing on social media and get excited to see our books and our lessons that are in there. And of course, the neat things that you make up just to meet your school's needs. Talk about a little bit of the lessons that you do and the readings that you do with classrooms. So one of the things with um, being, have this great connection with New York Ag in the Classroom and with Farm to School is, you know, we knew that there's these great access to lessons, but now I feel like the teachers have more buy-in because they've had the staff development and are more connected to New York Ag. The teachers are the role models. So I want the teachers to know these farmers, to be trying school once. And one of the ways we're doing that is by connecting them to some of the lessons through New York Ag and through local farmers. We've been doing Farm to School Friday, where we'll invite local farmers to come in and read to the, our younger grades some of the books that are recommended through New York Ag. And the farmers have loved it. We are such a lucky community. This is not the best time of year to do it. So we've done it through the winter months because that's when they have more free time. Right now, they're really busy. But I feel like everyone that I reached out to was like, yes. And once they came in and did it, they're like, can I do it again? Can I do it again? We have one farmer bring in a chicken, you know, and read one the hen and, you know, connected the kids with her chicken and brought in eggs to show the different sizes of goose egg and chicken egg. And it was really cool. And we had a Christmas tree farmer come in and, you know, go over the different types of conifers or evergreens and read a wonderful story called Christmas Farm. And it's been really wonderful. Well, I think that is really helpful. I know that one of my favorite things, one of my favorite trainings I've ever done, I've trained a lot of teachers, was when I had the Hamburg group uh, this past fall. And, you know, just to feel that energy of the teachers. And I think that's really because of the work that you've done and the relationships that you have developed in your school district, that they are so interested and willing to want to do more. They're like, okay, so we have this happening and Tricia comes and does these programs but we want to do even more. And I think that that is a pretty amazing place for, for a school district to be at. I've never at 8.30 in the morning had teachers cheering because they're so <laughs> excited to be there. <laughs> it's so, so true. Yeah. Our teachers are so into it. And, you know, and I think maybe just time. And now I do think the administration buy-in. I think, you know, you have that administration supporting it and wanting it. You know, the teachers then want it as well. And, 
We have a ton of support here in Hamburg, so I'm really grateful for that. I will just give a shout out to one of your curriculum coordinators, Caitlin, and how engaged she is and how she wants her teachers to have these experiences. So to have that administrative support and reaching out to us to come in and train your teachers, that's a pretty exceptional thing. It is. Caitlin is amazing. <laughs> I, I love her. She's fantastic. And pretty much anything that can connect our kids with farm to school, where their food is coming from, healthy eating, hands on the soil, our district and our administration, Caitlin and Mike Cornell and Ann Rich all say yes. So one of the things that you are implementing now is a USDA Farm to School grant. You play a role on an advisory group there and are helping in the cafeteria. Can you talk a little bit about your Farm to School grant and how that's going? Yeah, it's going really well. So Ann Rich is our school food service director and the lead for the Hamburg Central Schools Farm to School team. We have seven other members on the team, but really we have an entire district pretty much on the team because everybody's buying is fantastic. And Anne's goal of sharing local farm food and New York Thursdays has been amazing. So she is doing Harvest of the Month. So she's choosing local produce to share each month with different recipes. And what I'll do is I'll get into the cafeteria the end of one month to start a fresh fruit or veggie tasting for the Harvest of the Month for the next month. And then we'll do recipe tastings after that. I want the kids to see the fresh fruit or the vegetable first before it's put into a recipe. So I want them to taste it as a whole fruit or a whole vegetable before we move on to the recipes. And it's worked. It's been great. I'm telling you, stickers. Thank goodness for Ann and her stickers. Kids will try anything for a sticker. <laughs> what has been some of their favorite things that have surprised you? You know what? Just this past month, purple cabbage. So I just went in with shredded cabbage and I let the kids taste different varieties of shredded cabbage. And the purple cabbage, this was just washed and shredded cabbage. Nothing on it. The kids loved it. <laughs> and I will say beets. So we did a beet tasting with different types of beets. So we had red beets and candy cane beets and golden beets. Kindergarten, first grade, second grade, all these kids tasting raw, fresh beets. And lots of thumbs up. I was like, wow, this is amazing. That is pretty amazing. And I love that they get to see that produce at all different stages, from raw to final product cooked, to get yeah. that buy-in from them. I think sometimes they haven't seen some of these products before in their whole form, so you're really just wearing down barriers for yeah. them and giving them all sorts of new perspective. Yeah, no, I definitely, yeah, I think so too. It's me, yeah. When you walk into a classroom or you take students out mm -hmm. to the garden, how do they react? What's their reaction to your programming when you show up or a sole volunteer comes in to help? It all starts first with them all running towards me and hugging me <laughs> and excitement. They are just like, okay, what are we going to do today? They're excited. They want to be involved when they're on the garden. They want to dig their hands in that soil. If somebody has never touched dirt before or touched a worm or got up close and personal with a Japanese beetle, you know, they're like, okay, I can do this. That boosts their confidence, but also you know, makes for a really enjoyable experience to have their hands on doing something. I think so, too. I think that makes a huge difference. Well, and you've built such a great relationship with them. So I think that helps also to get excited for what you have next for them. Now, in what ways do you think your program's integration into the Hamburg School District has changed the school community over the last 10, 5 years? Really, it's just that ripple effect of giving the kids the experiences no matter how small, of connecting the beets that grow, the apples that grow, the carrots that grow with the soil, those seeds, and then 
you know, let's go to the farm market. Let's go to a local farm. These farmers are growing all of these same foods to feed our family. And it's had this ripple effect. Our farmer's market has just grown. I think our community desires it. Our community desires the connection to our food. And do you think it's made a difference in the agricultural community in your area? I do. I do. Like I was saying, with even the Farm to School Fridays, you know, bringing farmers in to read, they're excited as well. And they want to connect and teach the kids. One of our local farmers will do these little videos of him, you know, preparing his broccoli. And then he shares it with us. And I get to share it with the kids. Another one of our local farms, we just did a field trip. They're excited and they will reach out to us and say, you know, what can we do? What can we offer you? How can we help? How can we support? That's great. I think that's all the necessary partners working together. And I think that's why you're seeing so much success there in Hamburg. You know, I always say we're thinking about starting an agriculturally literate school certification. And if I could choose one school, I mean, man, Hamburg would be at the top of my list just because of all the multiple facets and integrations between your classroom instruction and your agriculture community and you know your cooperative extension presence and your administration and volunteer support. I think that that's just the right combination of being able to make a difference. And I see so much of that, so many different things you're doing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Those connections to community, classroom, cafeteria are big. And it's really happening. Every single one of those connections is taking place and it's surrounding sport everywhere. It's wonderful. So what do you think has been your greatest achievement so far in the last 10 years or so? Sustaining it. You know, sustaining school gardens, sustaining the interest. I think, you know, from the beginning, you said the school gardens are not something that's funded and it's almost always sustained by volunteers. And, you know, volunteers can wear out. You know, it's a lot of work to keep volunteers wanting to be involved. So I'm feeling really lucky that, you know, I live in this community of people wanting their kids to experience these great garden-based farm-to-school connections. And what about your biggest challenge? Again, sustaining it. (laughs) No, um, I guess it would just be the funds that you need to keep school gardens going, to maintain things. I can't say anything beyond that because I really do have such great volunteer support I have such wonderful teacher administration buy-in and support and students. That's for me. That's easy. I have lots of lots of interest, and there's never a shortage shortage of kids that wants to take part. What do you see as the future of your program? What's the future of Seoul, and what's the future of things happening at Hamburg? Well, I think that for us, sustaining and maintaining this program in our district. We've just been given permission to build garden beds at our high school, and it's going to be a small step, but we've been working with the uh, work-based development students at the high school, and this will help them develop some life skills, some work skills. In the past two years, we've been taking greenhouse field trips with them to do the same, to develop some work skills for students who will need a job once they're out of high school. So I think continuing to grow what we have in Hamburg, and maintain it. But I also think that we have a lot of surrounding districts that are beginning to grow farm to school programs and have started to take the first steps, but have reached out and asked, hey, can you help? And I'm all, I'm all for it. I would love for every surrounding district to um, have a thriving farm to school garden based education program. I think that's a pretty great goal. 
Well, Trisha, we can't thank you enough for all the work you do. We appreciate always partnering with you and having a chance to catch up when we're together and in working with your teacher and has been a true joy over at Hamburg. So we want to thank you for everything you do and thank you so much for being on Outstanding in Their Field. Thank you and thank you, Katie. Thank you for New York Tag. Thank you for Cornell. Thank you for, you know, all the support that you're giving us as well and all the opportunities to learn. follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on New York agriculture in the classroom, visit agclassroom.org forward slash NY. Remember to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service. Visit the show notes to learn more about our guests today and follow their adventures in the soil and in the classroom. For now, thanks for listening, and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field.